1: We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan
0: podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live, to our choices around marriage and family.
1: But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely.
0: Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We are thrilled that you're here. Today we're going to talk about some feedback on kids' sports and ritual and sex and all kinds of things. And then our main topic of discussion will be loneliness. When we first mentioned loneliness as a little bit of an aside in a previous conversation, we got a lot of feedback about it. And there's been some interesting news about England's decision to appoint a minister of loneliness in that country. So we're going to return to it. And then, as always, we'll leave you with something
1: a little bit inspirational to get through the rest of your week. So we got lots of great feedback on children's activities and our conversation surrounding children's extracurricular activities. Everybody feels pretty passionately about this. I think it's so funny. I think people either feel passionately in defense about their choices. Well, everybody feels passionately in defensive about their choices. But there seems to be even people who are involved in a lot of activities or people who are pushing back against that. It seems like nobody's super happy with the situation.
0: I do feel like there is consensus that whether you think it's really important to have your children involved or not, everyone seems to have this sense that it's too much right now. We've taken it to a place that isn't
1: healthy. So we heard from Jackie, who has worked in a recreation department for several decades, and so she's seen sort of the changes over the last several years in the way that children behave and the way that parents behave and the way that coaches behave. And she says that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on young children to pick a sport and excel at it. And the culture surrounding youth sports has shifted over the last several decades and unfortunately has not been for the better. Um, She talks about sort of the ugly outbreak she's seen from parents. What was really interesting to me as a city commissioner is she talks about the market is not there for sort of like rotating camps or just letting children try out the sports. I'm really proud of our parks department. They work really hard to make it available to kids to just try the sports, which is really nice for not a lot of money. And I think that's really, really important. What I really liked is where she talked about that teamwork has sort of this good reputation, but that there is this really dark side that she's noticed over the last several years.
0: I thought her message fit really nicely with Maggie's. Maggie is a longtime fancy Politics listener, and she runs a Taekwondo studio. And she talked about how, as an owner of a studio like that, you're always having to kind of grapple with, how am I providing value to the people who pay to be here. And she said there are a lot of sports for kids where the sport is dangerous if it's not done well, so you can't just hire anybody to work there. You need really high-quality coaching from people who've educated themselves, and that a lot of places have these out-of-town competitions and really expensive uniforms and things like that because they don't want to keep driving up the price point of the classes but they need to like make parents feel like there is a tangible value associated with the sport when maybe we would rather just pay more for the classes to know we're getting high quality coaching without all these extra commitments and all this stuff.
1: Well, she made a really good point that there's so many in which you need you need a professional there to make sure nobody gets injured, to make sure that the children, especially if they're going to be doing I mean, I'm going to be honest. I have some opinions about what we ask children's bodies to do and how often we ask them to do them to begin with, I don't think is a great thing. But I think she makes a really good point that, like, you need professionals there to make sure they're not injuring themselves and they're doing it properly. And then, yeah, I I never really thought about sort of how – I mean, I don't run, an, obviously, a children's recreational business, so I never thought about like, oh, yeah, they need to increase their prices, and they're trying to prove that it's worthwhile, so they add in things they think the parents want, and maybe it's worthwhile for everybody to stop and be like, what do we want? Do we want to, be, you know, to justify this cost by spending every weekend out of town? I'm not sure the answer would be yes for that.
0: So having just spent a full day out of town for a children's sporting event, I will say that I looked at this cheerleading competition that we went to for Jane and saw so much waste, Mm. like waste and pressure that I think was really unnecessary. Now, look, Jane had a great time. She learned some valuable things. I was really worried that she would be completely overwhelmed by this event because it was in a fairly large arena with lots and lots of people and lots of lights and super loud music. And she held up to that really well, much better than I thought she would as a seven-year-old. I was overwhelmed by the size and scope of what was happening. So I was, I think there were some good skills in that for her. At the same time, there were so many flashy uniforms, some age appropriate, some not in my opinion, so much makeup and hair stuff that just sent all these messages that I hate and then just the trophies and the medals and just all of the stuff that's really divorced from you and your team have been working hard on your round offs and this is a chance to show that off and I felt like there is a way to do this where there's their hard work is culminating in something and paying off that doesn't go to this
1: really adult rock concert kind of place yeah I think the trophies in particular are super interesting. Like, you're paying money to compete so that the people who run the competition can pay the money for the trophies that then you take home and have to figure out what to do with. Yes. That's super fascinating. The life cycle of a trophy, I bet, is would be a f- fascinating scientific research project. Well, and just what it teaches. Like, I don't want you to do this to get that. Mm-hmm. That's not why we do this. Well, it's all externalization. That's all we do in America is externalization, externalization. Yeah. So... That was an interesting experience
0: and one that we will repeat in a couple of weeks. And I will continue to be thinking about this. But I'm glad
1: to see that I'm not alone in feeling like this is too much. Speaking of externalization, we got a really great message from Katie. And she was talking about stress and the pressures we all feel. She was talking specifically about the pressure she feels as a teacher and what role the emphasis on individual responsibility, personal responsibility, in our American culture plays into that? And she wrote, "I don't think this is a problem specific to teachers, whether it's the GOP saying work harder for your health care or mommy bloggers promising these three quick fixes for clutter. The answer is always that if we work just a little harder, Then we'll get there. Where is there? I don't know. I think we're all feeling the weight of this all the time, whether it's figuring out how I can personally help our democracy to hold up under Trump or ordering the new diffuser in lavender oil, it seems like we're never turning off this underlying narrative that this is our problem to fix. And I guess that's because it is our problem just to fix. We just need to do it together rather than on our own little bubbles and not as a top-down individual should do better while the power holders from all levels carry on with the same old, same old. I mean, I teared up when I read that paragraph in her email. I thought it was so spot on, and I think it is so fueled by the Internet because now we took this individualistic personal responsibility culture and basically said, well, now you have the power to get whatever information you need to solve your problems or to make your life better. So go forth and strive until your jaws are so clenched they will not relax.
0: Yeah, I think the internet is interesting to think about in the context of Katie's message because in a way, the internet could and can be a forum for us solving problems together. We do share information on the internet that we never shared before. I've learned tons of things on the internet and a lot of things that you've passed to me that you've (laughs) found on the internet for making life easier, right? No one ever told me this before, but if I just do it this way, it's a thousand times simpler, But I think that what we receive from that is less about, okay, now I have a community and we are making some decisions together and more like, oh, my God, I need to learn all these things and then do them by myself. Yeah. And I need to keep learning and keep upping the bar. And in addition to learning things that make my life easier, I need to participate in things that make my life a lot more complicated because I see the way other people are doing things. And that makes me feel like I have to live up to it.
1: I was recently talking to two students at Western Kentucky University who are working on a documentary project as photojournalist students about the gun culture in Western Kentucky. One of them is from Denmark, and I believe one of them is from India. And we were talking about why Americans have this unique problem. And she said, the student interviewing me said, what part of American culture do you think is a part of this? And I said, I do think it is our individualistic bootstrap wild wild west get out there do it yourself make the american dream for yourself build it build it build it that plays into our psyche and fuels all this disconnection spoiler alert definitely related to our main segment on loneliness i really do think that that is just this message we send ourselves and pop culture over and over again and politics and just our sort of national narrative surrounding news events that it's We know nothing more than an individual hero out conquering things and protecting people and saving the day. And we've taken it to a level in which it's really affecting us all.
0: Yeah, there's a way to calibrate that and it be
1: healthy and empowering, but we've just gone way to the other side of it. So we got a lot of messages about the rituals you use to help yourself live more healthy lives and to calibrate to... Sort of the seasons with in which we all live that were really really wonderful, and we wanted to share some of the ideas. Shannon wrote us in that she really pays close attention to how she eats seasonally. So in the winter, she was there was a couple people who wrote us like in the winter they really focus on eating a lot of oranges and vitamin C to warm up those winter days, a lot of roasting, a lot of vegetable stews, and then lighter foods throughout the year. And I think that's totally true. I think eating seasonally really helps me. It's also just fun and mixes it up a little bit, you know? It is
0: fun. And I do love the idea of just trying to connect your body physically more to the outside world. Because, and this gets to the conversation we were just having too. We're all living so much in our heads that I think experiencing some ritual and some connection to the earth through our physical bodies
1: is a really helpful way to get us out of our heads. We got a really awesome message from Soleil and she had amazing ideas. So she talked about how at the beginning of every season she talks thinks and works on a list of things she enjoys for that season. And I realized I do a lot of this through memory keeping. So I do different projects during different parts of the year like I have traditions for the beginning of school and the end of school and Christmas that I do with my kids I also think decorating is sort of an overlooked way in which to mark the seasons of life and important fun things throughout the year so she talked about that she talked about eating seasonally and what I really like she talks about like being very focused on sunrise and sunset and I think that's something I'm going to start working on She woke up during the winter solstice and drove to a river near her house to watch the sunrise and talked about how magical that was. And I really love that idea of like really being focused on the sunrise and sunsets. And she really also emphasized daily walks, like just getting outside is such a grounding and energy giving activity, even if it's a gray, nasty day, like just going outside makes you feel better and like trying to be outside for at least 20 minutes a day. So I I thought all those were truly, truly excellent suggestions and recommendations.
0: It's been fun to hear everybody's ideas about this and to also hear some consensus around our need for more of this. I think this is like one of the least divisive things we've ever talked about on any podcast (laughs) because all, all we've really heard is, yeah, like I need more markers of time and I need more space and I need more ways to kind of reset myself here and there.
1: So in our new weekly podcast within a podcast, the, Bro- the isn't Beat, <laughs> several people had good feedback on like how to settle in for the night to mm-hmm. keep us off from grinding and clenching our teeth. So one of our listeners wrote in that she does Yoga Nidra, which is a rest meditation. She's been reading Karen Brody's Daring to Rest, which I added to my reading list after she recommended it. And then Emma said that she listens to like a soothing playlist before bed, which I thought was a really good idea. I'm really trying to use music more. I'm not going to listen to podcasts on the weekend. I'm just going to listen to music. And I'm just trying to put in some spaces in my life where I'm not taking in information. That whole bittersweet curse of the internet, which is you have all this information, but then you feel the need to take it all in. I've also wanted to give just my personal updates. I did lavender, which I think helps. I think the feet up the wall helps me more than anything else for anybody who, or legs up the wall 10 minutes before bed, helps almost more than anything else. Although my husband and I have been now meditating every day, and that does seem to be making a huge impact. And so I'm not saying, I cannot say that I am not clenching at all, but it does seem to be getting better and I'm not having the tightness and headaches during the day. So I'm just chipping at it slowly. That incremental care, it's important.
0: Okay, well, speaking of bedtime, one more piece of feedback. And this is really an aggregation of lots of feedback. We got so many messages about sex, you guys. I do think that the person who said there should be a whole podcast about this might have been onto something because (laughs) everyone has thoughts and there's lots to say. But here's the question that has jumped out at me as I've read message after message after message about sex. Why is sex so draining? Mm. Because a theme is, I'm too tired to have sex. Okay. I feel that way often too. And it made me think like, oh my gosh, shouldn't sex be a source of energy? Shouldn't it be one of those things that we look forward to and that gives us kind of restoration and renewal instead of basically a chore? Like we are all writing about sex like a chore. Mm. That seems to me to be like a really important question to
1: grapple with. Well, I think there's two things, two side. I've been thinking about this since you texted me your uh, aha moment. The reason I think, to the chore aspect of it, I'm just really coming to grips with how many women see sex as a performance, as a duty, as a responsibility to the men in their lives instead of a individual source of pleasure and connection. I think that's the reason we see, you know, well, I had a nutrition coach one time tell me that women, as a group, are really rule followers. They are provide like they're caregivers and they're rule followers, and so often they use food as a way to like break the rules. So I'm, you know, I've done, so- I've taken care of everybody all day long, and I just want to do something for myself. And because they've been told, we've been told that sex is something for men. That's just another chore. It's not a source of energy. It's not a source of connection. It's just another. Chore. It's just another thing on the list to meet someone else's needs. So I think that is hugely, hugely problematic and something we all have to grapple with societally, culturally, individually. But so I think that's the chore aspect of it. The energy thing, I think the only reason my pushback against the idea of like, why is it energy giving? Because I think like being vulnerable and being intimate is I don't think it's energy zapping. I just think it requires a lot of psychic energy to be vulnerable on that level And I don't think every time you have sex, it should just be exhausting, but it is, it's just a very, like I said, like sort of external vulnerable place to be in. I just think that takes a lot of psychic energy. I don't think you necessarily have to feel like negative afterwards. I just think that's why it probably doesn't feel energizing, even in the best scenarios. Well, I definitely agree
0: about the performative aspect. And I do agree about that vulnerability. It just seems like if it's worth doing, it should be an energy exchange. So, yes, it requires some energy from you, but you should be getting a lot of that back, too. And I guess that means that we're being vulnerable in equal ways. And that's not happening today, right? It requires a, a higher degree of vulnerability, perhaps, from women as a very general proposition than from men. Absolutely. Maybe? Maybe. I think so. Well, let's talk about loneliness in our next section then, because I think a lot of these themes will kind of emerge in that discussion too. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We talked about loneliness. I can't remember what conversation it was, Sarah, but I do remember that it was sort of a side note.
1: It was about stuff, remember? It was about stuff. stuff. And I said yeah,
0: so that funny. I really struggle with lo- loneliness, and you said you've never been lonely, and we got lots of reactions to all of that.
1: I also want to say that I texted you in a burst of excitement because we were I was listening to Allie McGraw on Oprah's Super Soul Conversation, and what did Oprah say? I've never been lonely. And I said, Mama Oprah, this is why we are connected, and I love you. Maybe I got it from Oprah, who I say raised me. Like, And the way she described it is so how I felt. Well, I, before I get into that, though, I think you found a really good definition of loneliness. So let's talk about that first.
0: Well, the definition of loneliness that I shared on our Stuff episode was that I feel lonely when the things that are most important to me are not of interest to other people. Which is, I think, distinguishable from the social isolation that a lot of the research is starting to validate as a, like, public health crisis. And we will talk more about that in a second. But for me, being a person who is constantly with other people, who is fortunate to be loved by family and friends, I don't experience actual isolation from others. What I experience is loneliness in that, particularly when I am in close relationship with other people, if I realize that we share... Fewer things as values than I thought, or that just what really captivates my attention is not of interest to them. That's when I really struggle with loneliness.
1: That's really interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm realizing that I had this very paradoxical experience growing up, in that I felt like an outsider in a lot of ways primarily because I was one of very few friends who had divorced parents now almost all of my friends parents are divorced now but they were not divorced all the way through most of our way through high school or at least it felt like that to me it felt like I was the only person who was fr- who had a stepfather and I was definitely one of my very very few friends who was an only child I have like one other friend from childhood who was an only child and everybody else had siblings my parents were both one of four, so we were in big families with siblings. So I felt like I was m- missing out. And I think if I described, if somebody said a one way in which loneliness manifests itself is a fear of missing out, then I would be like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, yep, I got that in spades. But at the same time, because I was an only child and because I grew up in these families, I never felt loneliness in, a, in the manifestation of, like, not feeling accepted or like what you were talking about, that discrepancy between like what I value. I've sort of always been like the Jesse Spano in my life. Like I always was like sort of more concerned with things than other people were. So that never bothered me because I felt, I felt loved and accepted by a huge group of people and still do like growing up friends and family and community members in my church. So I didn't feel that sort of that discrepancy never bothered me. I felt accepted while at the same time feeling like my experiences did not line up. Was sort of the culturally valued experience or my experience valued in my community, I sort of felt that way. I, and the reason I've been thinking about it a lot is I've been thinking about, you know, my relationship with my own kids and what's important to me with my own kids. And I realized, like, how how much creating these experiences for them that I felt like I was missing out on is, like, so hugely important to me, these sort of traditional family experiences, because I was always one generation removed from those in my sort of ex, um, extended family. So I think it's, it, it's so fascinating how loneliness can manifest itself in different ways and different experiences. I think I think it all means something different, but except for me and Oprah who've never been lonely. I really want to hold on to this shared experience with Oprah. That's the most important part of this conversation.
0: <laughs> Sarah, tell me if you think this is a fair characterization. I think that we are both consistent in our personalities. One of my favorite comments from listeners who have spent time with us in person is that we're who they expected us to be. I I really value that and, and take it as a compliment, but I think that you bring the same energy to every interaction that you have, regardless of your role in that space or the person that you're with, whereas I am always really focused on calibrating my energy to the role or to who I'm with so I'm always thinking who am I supposed to be for this person and you're always just there as Sarah right and I feel like that might be the key to why I struggle with loneliness and you don't
1: I think that's so fascinating this is a direct quote from an email from one of my dearest friends in the entire world she says like you have been all along Long before all this awesomeness, I have lots of favorite things about you. And one is that you're the same, whoever is present and whatever is happening. So, yeah, I think that's probably an accurate description. So what that
0: causes for me, being role-driven like that, is a sense that I'm never just me. I am whoever I'm needed to be for whatever's going on. Hmm. And the deeper that I get into relationship with someone, when I start to recognize, and I mean, I create this, I'm not blaming anybody, but when I start to recognize, oh, they really expect me to keep filling that role, I find it really hurtful and it's something that makes me kind of pull back a lot because I feel like, am I ever going to be allowed to drop this role?
1: Oh, but you know what's so interesting though? Think about this. Here's what I think. You are so good, though, at sort of compartmentalizing and detaching, like not being attaching to results. Like the mommy get, like you're so much better being like, nope, not going to feel that. And I wonder, whereas I take things, like when I show up as myself, that also means that like any hint of disharmony or disappointment people feel in me, oh, I take it so seriously because it feels like they – like, don't love me. Like, I've written before that for the first 10 years of my marriage, every time my husband and I fought, I thought, well, we should get divorced because he doesn't love me because we fought. Or, like, I was reading Brene Brown's new book, and she she has this quote from Oprah that says, um, Oprah is the third co-host today. I'm really loving it. Do not think you can be brave with your life and your work and never disappoint anyone. It doesn't work that way. And, like, I've almost burst into tears reading it. I was like, well, that's outrageous, Oprah. Of course I can never disappoint anyone. But you're really good. I think even though you feel... Is Do you think it's that buffer of like you feel like it's a role and not you more than I do? Yeah, I think I do feel that.
0: I mean, another thing that I said in one of our conversations that we got some email about is that very often I will have an interaction with someone and I'll walk away realizing that that person feels closer to me than I feel to them. Or that interaction meant more to them than it does to me. And I feel kind of a sense of sadness about that. I don't feel guilt about it because I have worked really hard on just not feeling guilt in my life to be able to continue functioning. But I do because I so often am in a role where I'm trying to be an advisor or a caretaker to someone else. Experience these moments that are like very powerful for them. But they're not mutual moments. Mm. And so... That's a little bit lonely. Now, I don't I love that. Right. That's I feel like that's what I'm here to do in a lot of ways. So I don't feel resentful of those folks at all. It does cause me to walk away and say, like, with whom in my life could I have that moment? and I don't have a lot of good answers to that, and I think that's the source of loneliness for me. Now, I think people experience loneliness in a lot of different ways. We got some emails from people who are in long-distance relationships who feel lonely, and we got emails from people who aren't well-understood at work, and from people who are in marriages that are happy, really high-functioning marriages, but where the two people just don't connect over the most important things to them, and that's lonely. And so I think there are, I don't want to, speak on behalf of all lonely people here because I think there are lots of different ways of
1: experiencing this. Okay, so go with me here. I think I have a Moana analogy. So I'm reading Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness, which is in many, many ways a book about disconnection and loneliness. Specifically she's just talking about our sort of cultural moment and how we've sorted ourselves into these silos where we all agree and but how we're as we've been sorting We've gotten more lonely. You would think if we're surrounding ourselves with people like us who agree with us, then we would be less lonely, but we're not. We're more lonely. And as I was reading it, I kind of, I thought about Moana, right? How she knows there's something else out there. And I think as human beings, we sense that there is something else out there, that the work of connecting with human beings is like sailing on the ocean. Sometimes it's stormy. It's always hard work. But that struggle, that striving is the reward in and of itself. This is something that's so hard for me to convey to to particularly my friends of a certain political persuasion because I live in a place where people feel very differently about politics than I do And it's just so hard to convey that, like, it is a beautiful connecting experience to just be, as I say, bumping up against people all the time. And I don't mean like they're your best friends. I mean, you just see them at the store and you say hi and you connect over your kids, even though you think they're crazy about, I mean, fill in the blank, whatever you feel is to have a strong opinion about. Or you go to church with somebody who's, like, sort of annoying and drives you crazy, but you just work through it, and sometimes you see bright spots in their personality. Like, I just—I think that's what we miss. I think we all think we're hungry for, like, one person or one type of relationship that will that will deeply understand us. And what I actually think is worthwhile as human beings is— being around people who for the most part don't understand us and who it's uncomfortable and hard and vulnerable, but you get these moments, right? You catch the right breeze, you sail in the right direction. And it's not permanent, but that connection you feel with a human being, whether it be an acquaintance or your best friend, those small moments are sort of worth the struggle. I think it's what we're trying to find that we can't because we've decided relationships should be or life in general should be absent of comfort or discomfort or pain or confusion or not knowing. And I just, you know, I'm not going to sing, but I do think it's that Moana moment. Like, you know, there's something out there and it's going to be hard and it's going to be scary. But that sense of adventure, that sense of finding something else in our connection with human beings, I think is what we're all hungry for. I mean, the line
0: where the sky meets the sea calls it's, me to. This so is what I'm you. saying, Moana.
1: I, love, I <laughs> love that song. Oh, where she says, in the end, where she's singing to the island lady, I know your name. Side note, Lin-Manuel Miranda is the best humanity has to offer. Continue. Well,
0: side note, I also think Moana has, like, one of the best ways to explain God to children that I've ever seen. So Ugh. I that movie. However, staying focused <laughs> <here> on loneliness. <sighs> I think there's a lot of truth in what you just said. And I think there are layers to interactions that we no longer allow ourselves because our relationships t- tend to be so possessive. Yes. It's like if I am friends, e- even in our friendships, you know, we demand so much of each other and we have so little free time that it's like you kind of have to choose who your friends are, and if you don't invite someone to a different cluster, that causes problems. We're just very possessive. It's certainly true in our marriages, and it doesn't give us a lot of space to interact with other people in those sometimes fleeting, sometimes deeply meaningful, long-term ways. And so I think this is part of why I'm so hung up on love stories that are not about romantic love. Because I think we have such an absence of that in our lives. As soon as there are connections, especially between men and women, there's like this rush to assumption that that connection must be romantic, right? And so then it's laden with weirdness or guilt or awkwardness or whatever instead of everybody just realizing that we all need each other and we need each other in ways that we don't fully understand. Erin Wathin who we went to college with wrote on her blog which is always brilliant and we can link to this in the show notes but she she wrote this great piece about how in high school a lot of us women had relationships where we would do what she referred to as the puppy pile or you would like physically kind of lay on each other all the time, right? Or hold hands or play with each other's hair and just give each other this kind of affection that we all really need. I had that with male friends in high school too, who were not my boyfriends at all. It just seemed like the most natural thing in the world. And we completely take that out of our experiences as adults in ways that, I think, do create this sense of loneliness, even when you're, especially when you're surrounded by people, right? If you're surrounded by people all the time and you aren't connecting with those people in ways that mean something to you, that's the loneliest I can imagine being. And, and I feel like I, especially professionally, have lived that experience.
1: One of our dear friends at church hosted a Mardi Gras. Their last names are Dorsey, so they call it Dorsey Gras. And <laughs> they had people from our church Older, like my parents came and people of that generation came. They invited neighbors. She invites running buddies. They have friends from work. Just this whole weird mix of people and I had two people independently leave the party and be like they throw the best parties it's such a weird mix like but that was like the thing people were citing as the sort of source of why the party was great and like you know it's not like every conversation I had at that party was awesome or that I didn't have some moments where I was like ugh gotta get out of this conversation but like that's the That's the point, like the other, not to go back to Moana, but what I love the most about that movie is the idea that like you connect, you go with your people, you go out, you find something new, you go back to your old island, then you go out again, like they just contain that paradox of connection and adventure and need so well that like, we're not saying you don't need your people, your people you check in with, like, you know, Brene Brown talks about like, you have to have your people that you trust and that that's so important, but also just like going out and bumping up against each other. She does a beautiful talk at the National Cathedral about like she wants to hold hands and sing with strangers. One of my favorite parts in the book is she says, I've come to believe that crying with strangers in person could solve the world's problems, which I totally and 300% believe. Like there's just something about being around each other and connecting. And I tr- when I look back, I'm at my like sources of connection. My church is a huge source of connection for me. Our school group, like the the parents in which I co-parent together with is a huge source of connection. And I just want to say like there are fights, there are disagreements, there are boundary violations. Like it's not all fun and easy all the time, but that's like you know like I said, like the sort of that's the point that 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 struggle and that figuring out yourself and figuring out other people. Like I just think there is a deep part of our human spirit that needs that, and when we're all either looking at our phones or shut in our rooms watching, binge watching Netflix, no judgment. I watched finished Modern Marvelous Mrs. Maisel last night, but like we just we're missing something, and I think you see that across our society and our culture that we are desperately in need of each other.
0: So one of the big differences between the two of us that we've noticed when we travel together is how much I am willing to engage Uber drivers and restaurant <laughs> servers. Uh, And other people like that. But but honestly, there is a connection to what we're talking about here. Growing up, my community was a place where you waved at every passing car and you smiled at every passing person and held the door open for everyone. And I don't mean to romanticize it. There are plenty of problems in small towns. But there were some really lovely things about it. And one of my deepest memories of my dad, who I am starting to believe as I get older, is an expert on living wisely in ways that I never gave him credit for. Mm. But I would go out on the four-wheeler for rides with my dad sometimes. And I remember this day when it was just blazing hot and we were out on the four-wheeler and we saw a neighbor who was, you know, quite a bit older than my dad out struggling to get his tobacco hung up in the barn you know, you put up tobacco. We never raised tobacco, so I don't know very much about it, but that was the language. He was putting up his tobacco and it was so hot and we didn't have anything to do. That was pressing. We were out riding the four wheeler for fun and we stopped. And my dad worked for the next two hours, helping him get that done Mm. just because we passed by and saw the need. And so going from that environment to uh, a new city as an adult, and having the experience of getting on elevators where people studiously avoided eye contact with one another <laughs> was pretty jarring for me. And that's why I think I have so much retreated into roles. Who am I supposed to be for this person? And, and I think part of the reason that I love to interact with uh, Uber drivers and restaurant servers is because I don't have a role to them. I'm totally anonymous. And I have seen in my life so many examples of a stranger's kindness having this really lovely effect on people that I just want to be part of that. And I experienced it myself. There's a restaurant where I frequently ran through the drive through especially when I was pregnant, to get breakfast locally. And there's one person who works at the window there who is just inexplicably kind and gracious. And my 30-second interaction with her has changed my day more times than I can count and I feel like that sense that it's just it's just behaving like we're all in it together you know what I mean without expecting anything else to come from that it makes such a difference
1: so how do we bridge the gap how do I find ways not to let the disappointment reach me so personally and how do you find ways to show up as yourself and not your role there's got to be a happy medium here I'm sure there is. And I do think we
0: learn that from each other all the time, right? We're, we're certainly rubbing off on each other in the course of these conversations. Something that people say to me a lot now is, you know, when I hear you and Sarah talking, I realize things that I've been thinking that I haven't been able to put into words. And I always think about when they say that, what a luxury it is that we have carved out this time to do this together. Yeah. And I don't I don't talk to anybody as much as I talk to you. <laughs> and uh and so there's something really powerful about that and so i do think that we we are each other's teachers in a lot of ways that are helpful i'm interested in what uh, from a broader perspective what london will do as this minister of loneliness All of Great Britain, you know, starts to take a public health kind of perspective on loneliness. And as I said a few minutes ago, some of that is really about social isolation. But there is really good research out there about the physical health effects of being lonely, the stress that it causes, the increase in hypertension and other cardiovascular issues. Uh, One thing that they're working on is uh, better subsidizing hearing aids because for elderly people, one source of loneliness is just actually not being able to converse in a comfortable way with other people. So I think there are some systemic things that can be done. I don't think that you can start spending money on like neighborhood block parties and expect that to get to what we're talking about.
1: So I wanted to go back to what you said about how often we talk to each other. I think that that is actually a huge part of our epidemic of loneliness, which is it's so hard to convey to people how important it is to just talk, to express what you're thinking, how you're feeling, what you're worried about. Because I heard Tara Sophia Moore, who's one of my favorite writers, talk about it just, you feel on one side of your brain and you have to sort of pull it over to the other side of your brain in order to put it to words, either through journals or in conversations with other human beings. And, you know, I think about how much I learn from just having to express how I feel to you through the podcast and like put into words what we're thinking and what we're worried about. And I just worry that, you know, typing on Facebook, I mean, I don't think it's useless, but I think it's so important to really find a way to write or express or talk about how you feel with someone because that form of connection can help you process it my friend annie calls it um parasite theory like you just need it sometimes when you're really worried or stressed about something you just got to put it out in the light so someone can go oh yeah that's bad let's go talk to somebody about it or they can say oh that's not see that's not a big deal you need to not worry about that and we just we just spend a lot of time in our heads and it's really really important to get it out and i think that Those voices in our heads can grow and grow and be a source of loneliness as well.
0: I mean, one thing that I'm learning about loneliness is that it's not a character flaw. Mm -hmm. And I don't lose anything by saying, yeah, I'm I'm lonely sometimes. (laughs) And in fact, I gain a lot by saying it because then I give other people permission to acknowledge that too. And we can all start to work together on it. And I think it's not... It's not a character flaw to start looking at your relationships and saying, how can I get more out of this? And where am I preventing myself from having that? Where, Not that everything is on me, but what is on me? You know, mm-hmm. where am I projecting? Because I do project a lot. I do decide this person can't possibly be interested in what I have to say about this. The surprise of my life is that people care about what we say on these podcasts. <laughs> it is shocking to me. And it helps me with loneliness. It honestly does because it makes me realize that I do have thoughts that are of interest to other people.
1: I'm always convinced everyone wants to know what I have to think. That's for sure. I'm just kidding. I mean, I do, but not all the time.
0: No, but I think that's a good thing, too. You know, I, so a few people noted that, they, that I sounded sarcastic when I said I was happy that you'd never been lonely. But I really am happy <laughs> that you've never been lonely. I don't wish loneliness for you.
1: I just felt so justified, like, when Oprah said that. I was like, oh, okay, good. Because I kind of felt bad afterward. I was like, What did I sound like a jerk? I just don't know. I just don't have that feeling. And also, I do think there is something about your sort of... Experiences of being alone as a child not just whether you had them but like sort of what surrounded them what feelings were you were you secluding yourself to escape some sort of trauma or danger were you alone but like supported and confident and sort of the resources you had, you know what I mean? Like, I think that that's a big, huge part of it, too. I, as an only child, just spent a lot of time by myself and was super, super happy to be in total control of my environment. And so I think that's part of it, and I think uh, that's probably what Oprah's getting at, too. But, like, it was really interesting because Allie McGraw said, oh, no, I get it, you can't, how could you do what you do if you don't have char- time to, like, go back and recharge? And Oprah's like, you do get it. Like, I think that's too, I think that, it's hard not to get wrapped up in sort like you said, like a value judgment or honestly that sort of introversion, extroversion thing that like maybe some people's experience of of being alone is an like a total source of energy, like they feel recharged. And just because your experiences of being alone is not the same, then that's OK, too. Well,
0: see, it's so it's so counterintuitive because I am the least lonely when I am alone. I do recharge that way. And another way that I recharge is through writing poems. I've always written lots of poems. I feel at home and kind of at peace with myself in the universe when I'm writing poems. Like actions that people would think of as lonely really, really work for me. It is when I am with other people and I don't feel that I'm really with them that I'm lonely and, and I would say the same thing about that. Like, I don't think it's virtue or vice to be introverted or extroverted. I don't think your fear of missing out is a vice. You know, I don't think it's a virtue that you've never been lonely. And and I don't think it's a virtue that I don't have fear of missing out. I think these are all just things that exist as they are. It might not be a
1: vice, but it is a dang burden sometimes. I can tell you that much. Yeah. I mean, all these things are burdens, right? And
0: so it's like, what, what can I be learning from this?
1: Mm-hmm. If anybody's got a cure for FOMO, hook a sister up. Hook me up. I'm here for it. No, I think the question is, what
0: is FOMO here to teach me? Oh
1: no, I hadn't. like,
0: and that's what I ask about loneliness. What is loneliness here to teach me?
1: Listen, Buddhist Beth. I don't want no. I just want to fix it. I don't want to learn from it. I just want to fix it. That probably means that it's not to be fixed. <laughs> Outrageous. Everything. I told you my enneagram healing attitude. The one that makes me want to vomit every time is, I've done all that I can do in this situation. I'm, every time I read it, I'm like, that is the most ridiculous statement anyone has ever written down on paper. Of course there's something else you can do all the time, which is why my jaw is clenched at night. And I'm trying to let go of that. I sent Sarah
0: some materials that I created in connection with my coaching programs. And she texted me back, I'm deeply
1: uncomfortable, so it's probably working. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. It was. I mean, I didn't. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm still thinking about my uncomfortableness with some of that.
0: Well, and that's part of that's part of why I think this is interesting to talk about, because some take on it, some take on fear of missing out or some take on, not being as connected as you want to be to other people is like a universal human experience.
1: But maybe that's what it is too. Maybe that's why we avoid it, right? It's because sometimes it does make us deeply uncomfortable and sometimes it does cause us to look at things in ourselves that, what's the phrase, if you meet one person and they're a jerk, that's fine. If you meet two people and they're a jerk, you might want to ask some questions. If you meet three people and they're a jerk, that's not them, you're the jerk. You know, I think that's, that's the fear we all have too and that's what keeps us Lonely, I think, sometimes it's just the fear that interacting with others will um, make us see something in ourselves we don't want to see because it happens a lot. It ha- bumping up against other humans is a messy, messy proposition. Well, it is. And to
0: tie this back to sex because we've read so many messages about it and it's very much on my mind right now, I think that part of the reason we're not having great sex is because we're having lonely sex. Mm-hmm. And we're we're not really making that connection that it's there
1: to foster. And we have internet porn to thank for that, according to the New York Times. Anyone who read that article this week, Which we will be talking about on Fancy We will. We're going to be talking about on Fancy Politics. But that was my favorite quote in the whole thing, where the feminist porn slash sex educator was like, I tell boys, if you want to be a lazy, selfish lover and have lonely sex, then watch lots of porn. And I thought, what a great way to put it, sister. What a great way to put it. You sent me that article while
0: I was in the midst of a six-hour marathon of catching up on listener email. And... I took that article in along with all these messages about sex. And I was like, by the end of the day, I was so worked up about this. I was like, I'm going to become a sex educator.
1: (laughs) We are going to fix this problem. This is an epidemic. Bruxism first, sex education second. We're gaining. The list is getting. We're going to have a list. Things we will be fixing after we finish recording (laughs) this podcast. First up, clenching and grinding. Next up, America's Sex Life. And I think um, the Internet is the source of all this. Beth texted me back after I sent her that article and was like, is it wrong that I think the Internet is like, well, that was good in theory, but in practice, maybe we should just turn it off.
0: Yes. And that is how I feel about it. This was a good idea. We need to just walk it back now. Walk it
1: back. Pump the brakes with the Internet, America. Pump the brakes.
0: Well, since this week is Valentine's Day, I've been reading lots about love and thinking about it, and I thought that we could end with this short paragraph from a Tara Brock talk. We both love Tara Brock. Her talk is called Love is Always Loving You, and here is a part of it that really spoke to me. In a way, we can think of absolute love as non-directional. It's everything. It's the essence of what we are. I like the metaphor best that absolute love is this ocean of being that is just loving the changing waves that are part of it. But when we're caught in grasping or aversion, when we're in that place of something's missing or something's wrong, there is an illusion and a sense of being a wave that's really cut off or a set of waves that really doesn't belong to the ocean. There's a sense of being separate, and in those moments, I sometimes think of it like a sea anemone contracted. It's no longer possible for the ocean to wash through it. When we're scared and contracted or contracted and grasping, The love and the energy of this universe no longer flows through us in a natural way. That's our regressed, wounded state, where we're tensed and we're not able to let in. We're afraid of letting in, because we're afraid we'll be rejected or further wounded. And that's actually not just for those of us who have been traumatized or abused, but it's actually a very pervasive, conditioned state that we don't often feel ourselves washed through with the love of this universe. The key dimension in homecoming for each of us is relaxing that protective layering It feels at first like a risk. Spiritual growth always feels like a risk, like we are in some way taking a chance. There's still the fear there, but we are taking the chance to let in, to relax that armoring that is keeping away the threat and also keeping away the love, because that's what it does. It takes some trust that there is some love here and that it's worth the risk. And then once we let some love wash through, we begin to trust even more. There's more and more of that belonging.
1: Tara Brock has definitely seen Moana.
0: (laughs) She has. I think that has to be true. Was she a collaborator perhaps on creating it? I bet she
1: was. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuance Life. Happy Valentine's Day to everyone. Until we hear from you next week, please keep the feedback coming. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all.